Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 3. Last week, I continued the summary of the book of Joshua. In that episode, starting with the Israelites' defeat, then victory over the city of Ai. The narrative then moved on to the renewal of the covenant at Mounts Ebel in Gerizim, then the trickery of the Gibeonites, followed by the defeat of the allied Amorite kings, sometimes described as the United Kings of Northern Canaan, who occupied territory to the south and west of the Israelites. All of these victories gave the Israelites more territory and resources to continue their fighting for the land they were told to take. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing to push through the history recorded in Joshua, beginning in the middle of chapter 10. And with that slightly longer than normal intro, let's get started. I normally try not to pause the narrative in the middle of a biblical chapter, but chapter 10 presented a good opportunity to do this as the latter half of the text is chock-full of noteworthy people and places. As is becoming relatively common, the best way I can summarize the next portion of the text is by quoting the chapter, though with some paraphrasing to make it clearer and less redundant. So here goes. The narrative begins with the Israelites, led by Joshua, having just defeated the allied kings. These kings were executed, hanged, Then at sunset, their bodies were tossed into the cave where they had previously hidden. That same day, the Israelites take control of the city of Makeda, located in southern Canaan, likely to the west of the Dead Sea, and another place to cover in the future. After, or perhaps while, they were fighting for the city, its unnamed king was executed, followed shortly by everyone who lived there. The text compares its destruction to that wrought on Jericho, likely meaning that every man, woman, and child was executed, along with all of the livestock. Total war. After Makeda, the Israelites, with Joshua still in the lead, marched on and attacked Libna. This city was probably northwest of Makeda, placing it closer to the coast, but still in southern Canaan. And what's also clear is that they bypassed Jerusalem, passing to its west. This is not mentioned in the text, at least not in this part of Joshua. I'll get to the attack on that city much later. Libna was defeated, and like the developing pattern, every person there was struck dead, including the king, with another comparison to what was done to the city of Jericho. The Israelite forces then marched on Lachish, The little in the text about this battle does seem to indicate it was a bit more protracted, as the Israelites had to lay siege on the city. Much can be read into this. Likely, the city had a wall, at least formidable enough to slow the attacking forces down. But not for long, literally only a day, as Joshua managed to take the city on the next day even five days less than the taking of Jericho took. Lachish is mere miles, 1.6 times as many kilometers south of Libna, which represented a very small gain in territory, but just as resource-rich. Fortunately for the podcast, 
there is a decent amount of history to cover on these two cities, which I'll get to in short order. As for what happened there at the hand of Joshua, you can probably guess. But if only to document it here, every person was killed. This is getting grisly, but in accord with the direction God had given Moses, the Canaanites were to be wiped out. Only then could the Israelites assuredly resist the temptation of their religion. Maybe that word should be plural. Their religions, their polytheism, and the corresponding pantheon of deities. The narrative does make a slight, unexplained, and interesting turn. Instead of comparing the destruction of Lachish to Jericho, it's compared to the recently conquered Libna. What to make of this? Perhaps nothing. And, honestly, I'm not well versed in the history of mathematics. But I do know that if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Was the writer of Joshua familiar with this? Well, illiteracy was rampant then, with only the most well-educated being capable of writing. With that in mind, I have to assume that the logical concept was understood too. Then again, it could be that the writer was growing tired of comparing everything to the destruction of Jericho, so chose to make a different comparison. Or it could be there was a nuance of difference that was understood by the people of that time, a nuance that's been lost to the passage of the 3,000 plus years between then and now. Moving along. Sometime during the two-day siege and the Battle of Lachish, the king of Guzer, King Horam, sets out to help his Canaanite neighbors. It's unclear if he arrived before, during, or after the battle there. What is made clear is that they, along with King Horam, were all killed too. Guzer may have been a city or a region to the west of Lachish, and if a region, perhaps stretching all the way to the coast. More on that place in a later episode, too. And I'm going to pause the text just for a second to point something out. In between all of these cities, and for that matter, between where the Israelites started at Gilgal and the second stop at Ai, there were certainly many smaller towns and villages. Given the utter destruction being wrought by the advancing Israelites, along with their, at least so far, following Moses' instruction to wipe everything out, with the noted exception of Gibeon. These so far unnamed places were probably destroyed, but weren't deemed worthy enough to be recorded for posterity, at least not in this part of the text. And after the defeat of the Gezers, perhaps more accurately named the Guzerites, but that's not nearly as fun. Anyway, after this victory, the Israelites marched to Eglon, which also required a siege. The place that's thought to be Eglon is located south and east of the recently conquered cities in this list. If it was where it's thought it was, and do note that most maps are so unsure of its location that they have a question mark, but if it was there, then the Israelites would have had to double back essentially marching back to Makeda, and then a bit further. This may have been part of a mopping-up operation, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Unlike the last siege, 
which developed into a two-day fight. This city was sieged and conquered in the same day, which makes me wonder why the siege was even noted. I'm sure the writer had his reasons, we just don't know what they were. And the people of that city met the same fate as all of the others, at least so far, again being compared to the destruction at Lachish. The next stop for the forces is a more recognizable name, Hebron, almost due east of Eglon, but it wasn't an easy trip. Eglon. Well, really most of the cities in this part are located in the coastal plain in foothills of Canaan. Hebron is located in the Judean mountains, meaning that the march required an uphill trek through the valleys and into a more arid area. While this isn't noted in the text, and that itself is a bit noteworthy, it is worth contemplating. The Israelites were on a mission, quite literally, to conquer all of the land, and neither desert, nor uphill climb, nor city wall, nothing, at least at this point, was going to stop them. There's something else, at least from a tactical perspective. They had apparently learned their lesson with the first, underwhelming assault on Ai. Instead of dividing and conquering the multiple places in parallel, they instead, at least seemingly, as it's not mentioned directly in the text, but they seem to have taken the entire army to every city. Instead of dividing their forces, they picked off their enemies, one at a time. Overwhelming force meeting a divided enemy, not given enough time to present a united force. Combine that with the scorched earth policy, in the wrath of the Almighty, and you can string together a significant series of victories. Back in Hebron, there is no mention of a siege, so likely an even quicker victory than what was recently seen. An unnamed king is mentioned, along with everyone being killed, just like at Eglon. But there's something else earlier in the chapter, in the part I covered in the last episode. Recall that five allied kings of Canaan, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, were defeated by the Israelites with the kings being executed. Now there's a new king, likely only holding the job for a few weeks or a handful of months. And he's gone down too, with all of his people. There's also something else notable. To quote the text, the Israelites took it, meaning the city, struck it with the edge of the sword, and killed its king and its towns, and every person in it. This is the first mention of the general region being conquered. The same would be said of their next stop, which I'll get to in a minute. As for Hebron, the city is said to have been utterly destroyed, with everyone in it. My interpretation is that it, too, was razed and burned. From there, they turn back to Debir, to the south and west, but still in the Judean mountains, though some maps mark its spot with a question mark as well. And turn back is somewhat relative. On a map, it was turning south, though Debir was closer to the proposed location of Eglon than it was to Hebron. Either way, they continued to roll up territory in southern Canaan, 
all in the area that would come to be occupied by the tribes of Ephraim, Benjamin, Dan, Judah, and Simeon. Though this is not all of the area these tribes would eventually take, but certainly heading in that direction. Back in Debir, it too had an unnamed king. Maybe. In verse 3 of the chapter, and in reference to the previously defeated five allied Canaanite kings, one is noted as being King Debir of Eglon. What to make of this? Perhaps the town of Debir was named for the king, or one of his ancestors. Maybe they were ruled over by the same leader. Maybe just coincidence. Whichever, both towns were defeated and utterly destroyed. As for the king ruling the city when the Israelite forces showed up, he, along with his subjects, were annihilated. We're finally getting to the end of the chapter with a concise summary paragraph, one worthy of a more direct quote. Joshua defeated the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb, and the lowland and the slopes, and all their kings. He left no one remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua defeated them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. Joshua took all of these kings in their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. And that's the chapter, dense with people and places to be covered later. And I'm going to point out one thing before moving on to chapter 11. The text tells us that all of this territory, which is relatively large to us, and to them was certainly large. But what I'm pointing out isn't that, but that the Israelite forces defeated and destroyed it, and everyone then returned to the camp at Gilgal, leaving the territory empty. If you take the word everyone, literally, there was a vacuum, and we know how those things go historically. Did everyone really return? The answer to that question remains to be seen. Flipping the page to Joshua chapter 11. 11 begins with a change of pace, a focus towards the north. Having waged a successful military campaign in southern Canaan, this was the natural next step. This time, though, and unlike what had transpired in the south, the leaders of the northern city-states weren't going to wait for the Israelites to pick them off one by one. Instead, and like what was seen in the first part of the last chapter, they chose to unite. The who's and where-froms are addressed in the text. The alliance was comprised of King Jabab, Amadan, the king of Shimron, the king of Akeship, the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinnereth, in the lowland, the Napathor in the west, the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. Multinational, if you're loose with the definition of a nation. Also, multi-ethic. This long list of leaders and peoples seemingly being led by King Jabin of Hazor, 
who was mentioned as being the initial organizer of the alliance. These guys weren't messing around, and proved that the adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, is as old as history itself. Their forces were well armed, said to have many horses and chariots. To this point, we're never told that the Israelites had any such mobility-enhancing armaments. The Allies meet up and encamped at the waters of Merim. Merim is most recently known as Lake Hula, though it was drained in the 1950s due to the malaria-carrying mosquitoes that bred there. It's north of the Sea of Galilee and on the west bank of that lesser-known portion of the Jordan River. God speaks to Joshua and tells him not to be afraid, as the Israelites will prevail. Joshua takes God's words to heart, assembles his entire army, and advances to the enemy's camp, a move that surprised them. According to the text, the Israelites attacked them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Misrepothme, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. They killed everyone, but that wasn't all. They also hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire something God told them to do. While burning their chariots is pretty self-explanatory, I had to do a little research on what it actually meant to hamstring a horse. And what I found wasn't for the faint of heart, but made the phrase make complete sense. Essentially, the horses were crippled by severing their hamstring tendons. That time period was rough. Circling back to the Israelites pursuing the Canaanites and every other enemy who showed up on the battlefield, their first stop was at Hazor, which, if you will recall, was the home of the king who formed up the alliance. The king is found and summarily executed, along with everyone who breathed, which possibly meant the livestock too. The city was burned which is the same fate that befell everyone in all of the cities who sent soldiers to the battlefield, with one difference I'll get to in a minute. The assumption is that their forces were routed and ran in retreat. As the pursuing Israelites came upon their towns, defended by a now-weakened military, if any at all, they were picked off one by one in a fashion similar to what happened earlier in the south of Canaan. If your strategy is working, why change it? And about what was different for the other cities. The text tells us that like Hazer, all the other cities saw every single inhabitant killed. But unlike Hazer, and for that matter, unlike the cities in the south, none of these cities were burned, and the Israelites pillaged them for anything of value. But more noteworthy, the livestock were seized and put to use at Israelite hands. There's one other interesting tidbit in the text. All of these cities were built on mounds, so tells, the high ground above the surrounding plain. Little good it did them. This chapter wraps up like the last, with the summary of the people and places defeated by the Israelites. They took all of the land meaning the hill country, the Negev, the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel and its lowland, 
presumably a different hill country than the place earlier in the list. They also took the territory around Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Belgad in the Valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. Joshua is said to have defeated and killed all their kings. Then a little clarity on the timeline. Apparently, this war took a long time. Like I said, a little clarity. So, it wasn't over the course of a few weeks. No group tried to seek peace, except the Gibeonites. But, if the Israelites were following their God, then Moses given instructions. No Hittite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, nor Jebusite was to be allowed to live, even if they sought peace. They were to be exterminated, receive no mercy, utterly destroyed. As for everyone else, they would be allowed to live, though in perpetual slavery. Then we're reminded that the Gibeonites were Hivites, but had tricked the Israelites into a catch-22. At the very end of the chapter, a few more people are mentioned. First, there are the Anakim, the giants that the spies are thought to have seen some 40 years earlier. They were said to have lived in the hill country, in the area around Hebron and Anib, and in the hill country of Judah. These are the places the Israelites conquered late in the last chapter. Why they weren't mentioned then is a bit of a mystery. But now we're told they were completely wiped out, along with the towns they lived in. In my head, this was an I told you so moment for both Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two spies who were not afraid of the giants in this region. Though the feeling had to be a little muted, as all of those the pair would have liked to have said that phrase to died before the Israelites crossed the Jordan. Maybe Joshua and Caleb just gave each other a high five or a fist bump. As for the entirety of the giants Anakim, some did remain in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. That we're told that will be significant later. With this, the fighting was done, at least for now, and Joshua allotted the land to the eleven tribes as Moses had instructed. He then gave the Levites their specific cities spread throughout the territory, and that's chapter 11, dense with people and places to cover later. I've got just enough time left in this episode to skim through chapter 12, which is just about the right context for this chapter in these Book of Joshua summary episodes. The beginning of the chapter lists out all the kings and places defeated and won, and the Israelites were led by Moses. Places such as the land east of the Jordan River, Heshbon, where the Amorite king Sihon lived, territory up to the border with the Ammonites, Bashan, where King Og lived, the territory around Mount Hermon, land that extended to the foot of Mount Pisgah, land around the Dead Sea, and the territory that borders what's called the Sea of the Arabah, which is a bit confusing. The Arabah is a desert south of the Dead Sea and as a desert, is currently very dry, as in no water, so no sea there. And since the Dead Sea was listed separately, it's likely that the Arabah is not one and the same as that lowest place on the land surface of the globe. It could have been a smaller lake, 
or this sea may have been nothing more than an accumulation of oases, or a small salt lake that has since dried up. Not much is really known about it. There are many other people and places listed in 12 as having been defeated by Moses, but I'll spare you the listing. You know where to find it. The chapter wraps up, though I in this case use that phrase rather loosely, but it finishes with a listing of 31 different kings and places defeated by Joshua and the Israelites, all west, both north and south, of the Jordan River. Some of these were specifically mentioned earlier in the text, like the king of Hebron and the king of Debir. Others provide a little more clarity, such as the king of Ai, which is next to Bethel, making me wonder if there was a different Ai. I'll touch on this when I cover the history of that city in the very near future. Then there are new additions, such as the king of Tanuk and the king of Jonium and Carmel. For these two places, this mention is the first of just a few in the biblical text. As for the other 26, you know where to find them. And this list provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up again in Joshua chapter 13. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.